Hello Cult Hackers and welcome to the podcast. I'm Celine, a media graduate with an interest in cults. And I'm Stephen Mather, I'm her dad. I'm an organisational psychologist these days, but I was raised in a high control group or cult. And, uh, and now we have a podcast talking about it. Um, so welcome everybody to the podcast. Uh, we're very excited today because we've got all friends coming back onto the show. Uh, welcome Brian and Troy from I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Welcome to the podcast, guys. Thank you. I like the fact that you called us friends. You did preface it with old, of which we are as well, but it's, it's lovely to be here. <laughs> Yeah, I'm more well, than yeah. comfortable with being old. That's fine. Yeah. Well, you know, I've we... accepted it now. <laughs> Absolutely, it, it usually is accompanied by wise, old and wise. So I am happy as long as you. It's a, you should have said actually. Here are some old and wise friends of ours, Brian and Troy. <laughs> I am happy to uh, to edit that in the uh, mm-hmm. in the after edits. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Well, we're we're very. Um, you know, I've been watching your progress with with your podcast. Obviously, we spoke to you. It must be a couple of years ago now, a uh, year and a half ago at least. And um, I kind of lots happened since then. Your podcast has gone sort of mad. It's um, stratospheric. Um, mm-hmm. So. What's been going on? Updaters, uh, first of all, before we get into all the culty stuff, uh, talk us talk to us about what's been happening. Yeah, it has been a big couple of years. I, I think it was towards the end of 2021, potentially, yeah. we spoke with you guys last. I mean, we've had you on, Stephen, our, our podcast since, but um, yes, gee, I, I don't know what's happened. I think it's the maybe we're in season four at the moment, about midway through season four. And we we had um, season three. We had lots of lots of interesting guests on. And, you know, it it grew. But then this year, Troy, you know, all credit to Troy, started doing these ad swaps um, with with other podcasts, and that has seen significant growth. So that's been a a fantastic thing, and not growth for the sake of growth, um, but growth really to to get out there, have more people listening, and we've seen quite a flip, particularly in the last maybe four or five months, where the vast majority of our audience now is in the US, whereas before it was Australia, with a peppering in the UK and the rest of Europe mm. and New Zealand. But um, yeah, definitely probably more than half the audience now is in the US. And to quote Troy, I mean, that's where they grow fundamentalists. So yeah. I do think that it is something that uh, we, we've tapped into a rich harvest, Stephen. That's yeah. right, the fields are wide under harvest. <laughs> yeah um you're now what what are you fishes of men um and all of that um that's right throw down your net. but can i can i say brian just before you go on because all credit was mine remember and and we were <laughs> quoting me um no actually the idea for ad swaps and i kid you not came from cult hackers and the cult vault because i was listening to one or both of those and heard the other and went oh, this is a good idea. And then when I reached out to Stephen about doing it, he's like, oh, yeah, we already do that with Colt Bolt. And I'm like, oh, do you? Okay, cool. (laughs) So I think you guys were actually our first ad swap. Cool, yeah. I mean, it's great. It's a great idea, isn't it? Um, We're really happy to to do it. It just makes total sense. And Mm -hmm. obviously our audience is not exactly the same, but they've got a lot in common. So, yeah, it's great that, um, that we're able to do that. I was just going to say, I mean, yeah. some of those guests that we've had on too, I mean, just to be self-indulgent for a minute, mm. Troy and I were big Keith Green fans back in the day. So Keith Green was essentially a prophet 
in in the you know seventies eighties in our space, and we've had a couple of people who've come out of the ministry that that Keith Green and his wife Melody live uh, led. Sorry, which was Last Days Ministries. So we've had a couple of people on there, and we've really connected with them, and they've got a podcast now called uh, Feet of Clay and Confessions of the Cult Sisters, and some really interesting storytelling through that of other culty things. So I think that we're seeing lots of growth in the area. We're seeing a lot of, I don't know, maybe it's because it's it's confirmation bias. We're thinking that maybe this stuff's everywhere, but I think it's more so that it's actually over the last couple of years, there's just more and more of it. So it's really interesting how much more appetite. We're, we're having quite a few... I wouldn't say a lot, but we've had quite a few people reach out to us either through socials or our email and say, hey, I never went to church. I was never part of a religious community, but loving the podcast, loving your content, because it's it's giving them a bit of a window into a world which they were never part of, but have certainly observed. And you're seeing that through a lot of, of uh, I mean, you've got the Duggars stuff, which I think we'll probably talk about a little bit today with Shiny Happy People. We've also got lots of Hillsong stuff that it's still coming out in the media where there's exposés. So I think it's becoming a little bit more mainstream in its news and particularly here, it'd usually be, and it's still a bit tabloid, but it would usually be a, a two-minute snippet on a current affairs show where they're now having a, a spotlight on something for 15 or 20 minutes in a current affairs show around cults of, of different types. And I saw some shorts actually later, uh, sorry, earlier this afternoon, but there's something, I think it's on the Moonies coming up and how they're recruiting in Australia at the moment in shopping malls. Wow. Yeah, because I think it was Casey that said, and sorry, guys, it is your podcast and we're doing all the talking, but I think it was Casey from Cult Vault and hi, if you're listening and too bad if you're not, she was the one that said to me, cults are the new true crime in terms of That's right. podcasting. And so I think we're riding a wave, like all of us, all four of us, I think we're riding a wave, which is great. If only we could make money out of it. If only, (laughs) if only, yeah, it is still a real labor of love, but yeah, um, that that is very true. Yeah. I'm, I'm very interested in, in asking that question. Why, um, why there is this sudden, um, seeming interest in this topic. Um, and as you say, it's always difficult when you're involved in it because clearly you are looking at this stuff more than you would have done before. So it sometimes feels like it's all happening and actually it was always there, but but yeah, everybody I talk to seems to think that there is a lot, a lot of attention on these sorts of groups, mm-hmm. um, and there's all sorts of possible reasons for that. I mean, um, people have always been interested, I suppose, in terms of you know when we would talk to friends. When you get past the, mm-hmm. you know, um, in the past, you know, didn't used to talk about ever having been a JW. Did you? It was something that you kind yeah. of closed the book on and was like, move mm-hmm. on past that. Obviously, a very different position now with the podcast. But um, yeah, like when you get comfortable, we start talking to friends. They would always have a lot of questions, wouldn't they? They'd be very interested because they're like, what? What is that? What are they doing? What is behind the curtain? Um, so I guess, yeah, kind of getting that on a larger scale now with all the podcasts and, you know, the documentaries and, you know, exposés and stuff like that. It's just, it, it feels like those conversations having in living rooms and on, you know, out and about with friends is now happening on a, it feels like, yeah, it's happening on a larger scale. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I I wonder whether you know social media has a big part to play mm. in this because there's plus the general, I suppose, zeitgeist of everybody shouting at each other um, about what they believe and um, what they shouldn't believe and so on. So there's a lot of almost kind of culty behavior, even in fairly mainstream circles, really, in terms of, you know, you must, you must adhere to this very pure form of something. And if you don't, then, you know, you're, you're essentially shunned socially. And um, this, maybe we're coming into a, a period where actually this behavior is becoming much more familiar with, uh, with, with everyone, which is kind of worrying a little bit in a way. Um, I don't know whether you guys have noticed that. Well, I mean, you see the whole Trump thing, and I know mm. we're probably all bored of talking about Trump, but he is in a lot of ways very typical of that sort of cult leader, narcissistic, psychopathic yeah. kind of personality. And so I think in that sense, it's it's there. But I think that there was a time when people were talking about the psychopath in the workplace. That was a, a, a big deal for a while, maybe mm. sort of about 10 years ago. And maybe now it's just sort of, I don't know, maybe it's part of a natural growth that people are starting to see the psychopath in other dimensions. And then of course, we're better than cults and, you know, it's sort of come back and the light's sort of shining. I don't know. I'm, I'm just speculating. I, I was yeah. in two cults. So for me, it's just old hat to be honest. Maybe the rise in discussing like narcissism as well. Cause obviously there's yeah. a lot of narcissist cult leaders out there. So maybe that's playing a part of it. Yeah, that is a that is a phrase that or that is a word that's being used mm-hmm. a lot. I've noticed on social media, um, and, and again, a bit like cults, really. It's it's sometimes it devalues the currency. So you know, if everybody's a narcissist, and if everything's a cult, then it, it devalues the importance of of some of the actual groups and actual narcissists. But yeah, it's certainly it's certainly there. I was just going to say, I, I think it's um, you know, these are fairly closed circles as well like they're not something that people often get to peek into so when there's an opportunity and i've I've said this in our podcast before that it's a little bit like watching a prison show if you haven't been in prison it's fascinating seeing Mm. what the systems what you know what is the currency within that space and and those sort of things i think pique people's interest you can and we have found this with some of the Hillsong stuff. It, it's a wash with the same old, same old. Like, it's the same bloody story. And to be honest, I stopped watching and listening to a lot of the Hillsong stuff because I was like, oh, it's the same story. Mm. Like, they're not exposing anything else. But recently we had a documentary come out and we interviewed the docu- documentary maker, Mark Fennell, and he's an Australian journalist. And he spoke, it was definitely about Hillsong, and he was part of Hillsong growing up and is no longer part of of that group, but he took a very different and maybe a little bit neutral as well. So it was interesting. He let the storytelling mm. tell the story rather than try and do this expose. Everything's terrible. It's awful. It was very much make your own mind up about this. And he presented the facts and the evidence and really exposed in a different way what these groups were trying to achieve. And they're very businesslike. I mean, it, it's their recruitment is about growth. It's about income. It, all these groups are about making money, being rich, all that sort of thing. And I think that came out quite clearly without him having to push it. He let them tell their own story. And it was yeah. really, really clear, I think, to the to the watcher. And it was really good talking to him too, because he was like family, because he knew it, he'd grown up in it. Mm. And so here we are talking to this mainstream journalist, and he's made this really swish documentary, and yet 
he was one of us at the same time. So it was it was really quite cool because he's quite well known in Australia. And so it was kind of cool to get him on. And whereas we've had other folks who've been who who are mainstream media who've done stuff and they've never really been in it. And so you're still kind of trying to convince them of things or or, or you know that they don't quite see it that way. Whereas Mark, it was it was a really cool experience. Mm. It's a really interesting question around how these things are investigated and, and the same for academia, really, um, when looking at how these groups operate. Um, there is still a bit of a division in the academic world around, you know, whether to treat these groups as um, new religious movements or very neutral, very respectful and so on, or to actually identify some of the harmful practices. And that is still a tension, I think, that exists within academia. Um, so, yeah maybe that that'll never be resolved um you were mentioning there about um about the sort of mentality the the thinking behind these groups and and that was one of the actually one of the first questions i wanted to to ask you about your your thoughts on so the, the sort of mentality of fundamentalism how people think when they're in a fundamentalist setup well i think there's a, a clue in the in the term fundamentalism um it, it's really it's no they know everything like they've got all the answers and fun, to be a fundamentalist i think brings a level of security i felt that security when i was a fundamentalist i felt that well i don't need to look anymore i've got the security of actually knowing and if i don't know that's okay because it's god who lives in me who'll know and they'll direct me and certainly guide me through life and even if you know it's a little bit sidetracked that's okay because god's there and it's probably all in his plan so in some way there's it, it it's it's a beautiful thing because you don't have to look left or right you just look straight ahead and and stay on that path but it's rubbish and in the end i think it is an arrogance as well mm. and it's a it's a, he's trying he's just laughing at me because yes i do every now and then just go yeah yeah it's no I'm, I'm laughing at you yeah because you said it's rubbish because it because yeah. it is and it's just like okay now the colors to the mask don't hold yeah. back Brian. Say what it is. <laughs> yeah and and look i i think i'm certainly a lot more pragmatic now than i was even a, a couple of years ago when we started the podcast and it's been a a journey to understand what i believe but it's that certainty i mean the and maybe it is like we were saying before Troy and I are old. Yes, we're old. And I think it's you do definitely, as you get older, get a bit more certain in the fact that there isn't as much certainty as you would hope. And you've you've really do go in with your eyes closed into life quite early, I think. And particularly then there's an immaturity. You stay at this maturity level, which is really um quite damaging. And I've said this before that. A lot of fundamentalist friends that I've got that are my age, <clears throat> older than me, so in the 50s and 60s, they're quite immature in many ways if they have actually stayed true to their fundamental roots because you can't challenge things. You can't actually think that there might be more than one way or a different path because your path is the only path. So it's that arrogance. It's that certainty. And it's not seen as arrogance. That's the problem. It's seen as, oh, well, we've got the answers. So why wouldn't you actually jump on board? And that's one thing that I have a, an enormous issue with because, as I said, I don't know around that certainty. What do you reckon, Troy? What are some of those key tenets of the people that we refer to as fundamentalists 
I'm just laughing because you're acting like you're the host of this podcast. Well, Brian, let me let me respond to that. <laughs> hey, that's good. I like it. I was, I was yeah, yeah, it's cool. Yeah, yeah we'll, we'll be really easy guests because we'll just do all the talking. Yeah, yeah. Um, actually, if you send me the file, I'll do the edit for you. <laughs> I um no, I won't. I I was driving past a Jehovah's Witness uh, Kingdom Hall because my daughter's friend lives just near one, right? And for what it's worth, Steve, every time I drive by, I think of you. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> so, see, and, and she goes there a couple of times a week, so you're front of mind all the time. But I can remember being in there in 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 fundamentalism or in, in church and being told that the Jehovah's Witnesses are not the true faith. They are completely different. They are a, a false version, yada, yada. So they're not us. Yet, of course, the more I... I walk away, the more I see actually the Mormons are just a brand of Christianity, a, a different brand, but a brand. The Jehovah's Witnesses are a different brand. Pentecostalism is a different brand. You know, you've got all these different brands. And it was actually the group that told me that you guys, well, you know, when you were a Jehovah's Witness, are not of us, you know, and yet that's just not the case. And so there's this othering that happens as well. And it's, you know, and we talked about this, Stephen, when you came on our podcast recently, where we talked about, you know, this sort of tribalism and this othering and in and out and all that kind of mentality as well. So, I mean, that, that comes into it, that there's this whole community and there's this very strong divide between who's in and who's out. And that brings you a large degree of comfort. And so even when I was in the, my, my sort of second Pentecostal group, the first one was was quite harsh. They practiced shunning and all the kind of stuff that, mm. that you would have seen as a J-dub. The second group was a lot more, it was just warmer. It was softer. And it was a really nice place to be until you finally did bump up against the walls. And then it, you know, then you could be, you wouldn't be excommunicated, but it was kind of a a soft shunning, a, you know. So, so that's something that I think when I and and you know when I think about coming on your show and thinking about the way that the J Dubs were and the way that we were more alike than different, but gee, they like to focus on the differences, don't they? To say they're not us, and even within the Jehovah's Witnesses, you've got oh, all these yeah. other breakaway groups and splits, mm. and yeah. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses are the only true religion. You know, they, in fact, everything else is false religion. It's Babylon the Great, as far as mm. Jehovah's Witnesses are concerned. That it's all lumped together. Um, so it's it's yeah, it's the same the same sort of message. I mean, what I think is quite interesting about the word fundamentalism. When I was growing up, I, I remember thinking to myself, "We are fundamentalists," you know, because we are trying to get back to the original first century Christian sort of way of worshipping. And and I guess that's what um, Pentecostals are trying to do. That's what a lot of these other groups are trying to do. But it's such a difficult thing to do. And what are actually are you basing that on? You know, you've got a few a few texts in a in a very old book. And on the basis of that, you're trying to construct a religious uh, way of living that mirrors um, a group of people 2000 years ago. Um, and that, if you think about the difficulty of that activity, that's um, I think wh why, of course you get so many different views and so many opposing ways of, of looking at it. Have you heard the term historylessness or historyless? No, I haven't. Mm. So the idea of historylessness, and this is what we see with a lot of these fundamentalist groups is they are trying to pick up, from it's like the book of acts ends and we begin yeah. and anything that happened in between isn't really 
anything to do with us, even though, of yeah. course, you know, the Jehovah's Witnesses can trace their lineage right back to the Reformation and, you know, and even further back, you know, to Catholicism, although they don't want to it to be seen that way. They want right. the book of Acts to end or the, you know, or the mm-hmm. Bible to the canon to close and they start or however you want to look at it. And we were like that too. But just listening to you before about saying we want to recreate the first century, it depends on what you mean by that and which focus. Like we as Pentecostals say, we want the miracles and the healings and the mm-hmm. Holy Spirit. Yeah. And then you've got others that would be, you know, having another focus. And let's face it, it is impossible to do. Like mm-hmm. that that task of saying we're going to recreate the Book of Acts church or the first century church, the fact that we dress differently, you know, I, I'm thinking about the buildings and how the Jehovah's Witnesses love the fact that they can, you know, throw up a building in a few days, that kind of mm-hmm. thing. Who who did that in the first century? They were, you know, <laughs> yes. running around in in, in synagogues. And mm-hmm. it's just, it's just it's foolishness, mm-hmm. is I guess what I'm trying to say. That they right. that they think that they are. And, and so that's what history listeners is. So what they do is they ignore all the church history in between because I don't have to take responsibility for that, for crusades and all these other things and all the problems of the early church. We don't have to worry about that. We are just in God's true lineage. And that's what history listeners is. And I think it's something that's sometimes overlooked when people mm. think about these groups because the doctrines don't come from the Bible. The doctrines were handed down and they were adapted and things changed, etc. There is no historylessness. And yet that's what they that's what they try to do. Yeah. I'd, I'd, I'm looking to get somebody on. If anybody out there is um is a, a scholar in this area, I really want to get somebody on to talk about um the Anabaptists and um how uh, actually if you look at Jehovah's Witnesses, I don't know much about how the lineage sort of works with evangelicals but from jehovah's witnesses their beliefs and everything very very similar to the anabaptists um and so you know jw's like to think that they are this pure worship was restored in in the the late 19th century um in america um for some reason um but it it actually they they are they have a tradition just the same as the local Catholic Church or the Church of England. It's just, um, yeah, they just don't want to to admit it. You're absolutely right. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, all Pentecostalism has pegged back to the Azusa Street revival in LA. And um, essentially from that, it's just a, a string of revivals. And that's the yeah. way that the church <laughs> seems to, to grow each time. It's like, oh, there's another revival. Mm-hmm. So even so, recently, there was one in Kentucky in the States that they called a revival and lasted for a lot right. of week. You know, <laughs> even by, I think, Pentecostal terms in their, their loose measure of revival, that certainly wouldn't have hit the mark. So I really wanted to to nail that word because it's something that um, our XJW listeners just won't be familiar with unless they they listen to your show um, or other X evangelicals because the word revival is just never used by Jehovah's Witnesses. So um, the whole concept of revival, just tell us what that actually means. Well, my first <laughs> church was called the Revival Center, so we were the center <laughs> of the revival. Right. Um. Look. To be cynical, revival, when, when Jesus has taken 2,000 years, right, eventually some in the church actually work out, we've got to stop saying he's coming soon. So we, But we need something on the horizon. We need something to look forward to. And so this is revival. And, look, there would be so many different definitions of revival. Mm-hmm. But in essence, what it is is it's something that's 
that you can seek out and it becomes this more pure form of God. Now, God is still everywhere, yet he manifests himself in sort of tangible, real ways, like he invades this reality. You know, he becomes purely, truly interventionist that he's, you know, people are sensing his presence, people are repenting, there might be healings and a a true revival, I guess, and forgive me, oh, sorry, correct me if I'm wrong, Brian, but it's about the number of conversions. You know, it has to be, it has to end with a lot of people repenting and a lot of people converting to the faith. That's what they see revival as. And so we were in Pentecostalism constantly being told revival's coming, revival's coming. Um, And then occasionally Jesus is coming, but revival's coming, revival's coming, revival's coming. And I do believe that there's actually a sort of replacement for for the the return of Christ. It's it is, mm. it's something to put on the horizon. It's something mm. to keep, it's a carrot in front of you to keep moving. And so we would pray for revival. We would seek for revival. We would do our best to, you know, to to bring it about through holiness and prayer. And I I think really from from our perspective, revival was just something to keep us busy, you know, to to keep us focused on because mm. it wasn't, we didn't go door knocking. You know, that's not who we were, we, mm. we, but we would go to these prayer meetings and pray for revival. And, um, you know, this, these people that came onto our podcast recently to talk about Keith Green, um, who Brian was talking about before was this prophet in, in the seventies and eighties and, and his whole, his whole ministry would have these little revivals, but it was all, it was, it was based on prayer, but it was also based on holiness. So they would sacrifice things. They would give things up. They would whatever um, idols you had in your heart, you would, you know, burn your books that weren't, you know, whatever. Mm. And it was, yeah, it was just this. And and I think from a, from a cult perspective, it's that demand for purity of going back to the original version of Christianity. And I look down and I see she had a knife right at my back. And of course, now I'm banging on the door and the RA comes running from the computer in the hallway and opens the door. And I sprinted three stairs at a time up to my room. Yeah, the culture of Bob Jones University is very much like other religious institutions. They created a shame structure. These structures are intended to keep people within the boundaries of what the group of the cult wants them to be in. I was followed a lot my freshman year, second semester, because I got what was called socialed. The RA, the resident assistant on my hall, would follow me around from classes. Being able to say that's Satan, being able to say something's controlling you in a negative way so that you have to then dismiss those drives and you have to dismiss your anger and the resentment, etc., is um, it's like tying someone's hand behind their back because you're not teaching people how to address it. Surviving Bob Jones University of Christian Cults is a thought-provoking podcast series that delves deeply into the history of Bob Jones University, the psychology of fundamentalism, the criteria for cults, and survivors' experiences The series is premiering August 23rd, 2023. Please spread the word and leave a positive review to help other listeners like you find the show. If you're enjoying the podcast, you can support it by becoming a patron. 
you can support the podcast for just £1 or $1.50 and receive a variety of Patreon benefits as a thank you. Don't forget to share the podcast, follow, like, subscribe and rate the podcast on the podcast app you're using. A review is particularly helpful as it gets us recognised by new listeners. And finally, if you'd like to reach out to us and tell us about some court hacking you've been involved in or you just want to say hi, you can do so by going to courthackers.com and using the contact form. We love hearing from our court hackers. Thank you for listening and now back to the podcast. I think also one key thing with revival is weird shit always happens. Like it's, it's never a lovely quiet time with Jesus and we're just talking to people and they're going, I would really love Jesus. Weird shit happened. And there's um, it, there's some really famous revivals, for lack of a better term. One of them was the um, Toronto Blessing, and that was back in the 90s. And that was, that was enormous, uh, the Toronto Blessing. And it was obviously, it was a Canadian thing that then went global. It was a bit of a, a Bieber moment. And I was about happened, to say, just it, like Justin Bieber. <laughs> and incidentally, he was actually involved in the church of the Toronto Blessing back, back in the day. And there was a prophecy that he would be a global leader and um, wow. rep- represent God. But, you know, I think as we've said this before, so did thousands, if not tens mm. of thousands of kids in that scene. But in there, there was, you know, stories of people growing um, gold teeth replacements. There was, I was going to say angel dust, but that's a very different thing. Um, there was like um, glitter that was was falling. Definitely not angel dust. Although I would question maybe people had angel dust. It was angel's and, wings, feathers from angel's wings is where the that's angel right. come from. And, and, you know, just people mooing like cows, clucking like chickens, running around. And and apparently that was Jesus. And Troy, what did you do? I simulated giving birth because God was doing a new thing through me. I know. Okay, can I we have a, a, I a reconstruction of that right now, yeah, sure. please? All right, all right, here we go. Hold on, I'll put my foot up in the stirrups. It was a bit like that, truly. And it's embarrassing. I've said it on other podcasts. I've said it on our podcasts that I simulated giving birth. Oh, wow. And um, I did. Yeah, I was open to suggestion. <laughs> wow. This this was, I just want to put it on the table. This was a pivotal point with Troy and I where we actually departed a little bit from uh, that similar direction and trajectory we were on because I, the Toronto blessing, I just went, this is a crock of shit. I do not, I do not believe and I, I, that it is from God or whatever. Mm-hmm. I just think it's hysteria. And it was a divisive part, not just for Troy and I in, in our beliefs, but really in the church, it really did mm-hmm. divide a lot of people. And you've seen that with revivals quite often. And the church that's usually having the revival or the, the movement is very much like, well, people aren't going to get on board. They're going to miss God, aren't they? They're going to miss the blessings of the Spirit. And that manipulation just starts over again. And and we were told for so long that it was coming. Like for me, when when we've been told that this is, you know, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. And then when that broke, I was totally going to give it a go. And, you know, I didn't stay in it forever. I don't know, maybe a year I sort of sniffed around there and stuff. But, you know, I, I take it easy on myself going, okay, if this was what I was fed and this is what I was told, well, you know, I wasn't going to chuck it in right away because what if I missed out? Mm. What if this was God, you know? I think that's really interesting. Um, So revival from a sort of sociological perspective, it's like um, 
and and a psychological perspective it's like breaking and remaking something and that's actually a really good way to uh, for something to have longevity is to is this constant um remaking of something and actually what revival seems to do for these churches is provide an opportunity for them to remake themselves and it even sort of emphasized new things perhaps drop some other things as well as this it replaces this um this return of, of jesus mm. it, it actually fulfills quite a few functions by the sound of it to me yeah most certainly uh i mean you definitely see you you can't deny that through these revivals in inverted commas you see church growth yeah. you absolutely see these movements actually not only grow in people, but grow in influence. And quite often you'll see movements sort of folding into each other and almost like takeover bids, and they'll just become part of that. And you've seen that with the Australian Christian churches in Australia, where it was, you know, the, the Assemblies of God, and then it sort of morphed into this Australian Christian churches. And it's all become a little bit same-same as well. Mm. And it homogenizes the the movement in many ways and consolidates, keeps moving forward, picks up more followers along the way, and then gets a bit bit more uh, business-like in its approach too, which I think we've seen with Hillsong. We see with lots of movements, even like Bethel in the States as well. It's a very, very astute business model. Mm. It's quite important to me in terms of the I guess the way that uh, kids and teens are brought into these groups or regardless of born in or joining, um, just because I feel very lucky and privileged that my dad decided to leave um, when having me because uh, thanks. <laughs> um, so, yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of one of those things I was thinking about, um, you know, we've spoken to a few people that joined in their teenage years into these kind of groups like they're approached on the street and said, oh, we're doing this you know, we're doing this um, event today. I think you really enjoy it. Come along, you know, people get sort of swept into it. And I was just thinking about ethics, uh, the societal kind of response to that as a model. Um, Because I was sort of talking with my other half and we're saying, you know, if you want to join a club as a kid or a teen, you have to get parental permission and sign something, you know, but you can go and join a whole religious movement, you know, get brought in off the street and, you know, have your, all of this inculcation <laughs> um, happening without, you know, even having your parent or guardian necessarily having to give any consent to that. I'm not saying that obviously parental consent is going to always save you. Obviously there's born in kids that, you know, had raised in that because of how they were um, brought in by their parents. But I was just wondering, if, how do you guys feel about, you know, the approaching of, of younger, you know, minors effectively into these groups? Yeah, well, Celine, I don't know if you heard, but I was a teenage fundamentalist, mm-hmm. <laughs> and and so mm-hmm. was Brian, and we, yeah, so we were both recruited as yeah. teenagers, mm-hmm. and I, you know, as Bugs Bunny says, you know, took a wrong turn at Albuquerque. Mm-hmm. That's that's how I see it. I see mm-hmm. it as if that hadn't happened to me, I would have had a very different life and a very different story to tell. And maybe my trauma would have just manifested in in a different way instead of a religious way. Who knows, right? Mm-hmm. Who can who can say? But there were groups at my school that, you know, one was run by a teacher. And so mm-hmm. 
he actually had a Christian club, which was aligned with the Baptist union here in Australia. And he would have a Christian club. And once a week, the Christian kids would come. And I remember the first time I went along because I wasn't a Christian, but I just wanted to see what the hell these people were doing. And they were actually, he was sitting there with them strategizing, how are we going to get more kids to come? And I joke about that because the irony is my friend and I were there. And instead of stopping and talking to us, they went along with their strategy meeting. But it was it was a it was a strategic thing that they were doing, and they were funded by Keswick Scripture Union and 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 other sort of Baptist aligned groups. I know that Hillsong do a like a breakfast pancake breakfast thing that they were taking into schools. They're really clever because they mm-hmm. know if they went in there and started saying Jesus and handing out Bibles, then the shit would hit the fan. So mm-hmm. they do the events and. What happened was for me was a group of uh, girls from the school performance, the school drama that I was in, actually went along on a weekend to a church group because that group had sent a band into the school and the band had played at lunchtime and they said, hey, if you really like our music, come along. And then they went along and had, you know, their conversion experience and then came back. So it was all very strategic and all very well done. Um, And I think that, it was interesting the point you made that there was never any permission slip. There was never any anything. You know, like you said, you have to do that for scouts. You have to mm-hmm. do that for the football. But you can go to a church and give far more authority and far more control of your life to yeah. these groups without having to to do any such thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I was whisked away on camps by by one of the groups that I ended up joining and they love bombed me and all the things that they do. And I ended up as a teenage fundamentalist. So I'm very much against the idea of recruiting teens. Mm-hmm. Even Billy Graham, the famous evangelist, he said, we've got to get him young. And the majority of people that he would actually aim for were, were young people, you know, up into the sort of their low twenties it's a strategic move by the church. And that's why I think people relate to our podcast, because if you were a teenage fundamentalist, you are going to be far more impacted and far more, dare I say, traumatized than if you join later in life and you've already got a sort of a more formed personality and a more mm-hmm. formed sense of identity. So yeah, I, I think it's very intentional, strategic, and I think it should stop, yeah. truly. Mm. I think um, also there's this particular vulnerability when you're a teenager, which is I have a a real issue with that they, and I do think that there is an intentional targeting of that. For me, I was definitely someone who, which I think a lot of teenagers are the same. I was trying to work out who am I, you know, there's lots of confusion around um you know, contextualizing life and what's it all mean. And I think you do, even though you're sometimes not consciously searching, you're searching for something, you're searching for who you're going to be, who you're going to become, all those really um, deep psychological things that are happening to teenagers that they've got no fucking idea. (laughs) So I think that for me, I wasn't targeted by a church. I, I was more so targeted by my two brothers who'd become Christians in the you know year or two before this happened and i don't think again they were intentionally targeting me trying to recruit me they just wanted what they had found and they had certainly seen positive changes in their lives but i think it's a lot more sinister most of the time i do think there is a targeting and i remember growing up 
that you had religious education in school. And for us, it was either you went to the Baptist or the Catholics. And sure, you'd have 45 minutes of religious education once every few weeks, but then they didn't say, oh, and then come to our youth group on Friday night and Saturday come to whatever and Sunday we've got this service. That happens now. And as Troy said, you know, it's through the pancake breakfast and feeding of the hungry and there's a, a real motive behind them doing that. My partner, she has never been involved in a church before. She's not not religious at all. Um and she's involved in this group locally, which is actually run by a couple of churches, which it's it's feeding people who are acutely mentally unwell and homeless. Mm. But what I love about it, she's been involved for a few years, what I love about it is that there is absolutely no mention of church. Like they are doing it from a genuine, we are going to feed these people, we're going to help them if they need accommodation, and we're not going to target their souls. Mm. Whereas these other high control groups like Hillsong and other Pentecostal groups and I'm sure J-Dubs and Mormons, they all do it for the outcome they want, which are more souls, notches in the, the old salvation. Yeah. But just immediately you said that just made me think of um there's a lot of J dubs that learn how to do um sign language or like you know the sign for people that are deaf and blind, and then they can go and <laughs> indoctrinate those specific people because there's a you know, a lot of people can't communicate with them because you know we don't unfortunately in schools learn those languages so but they can now go in and proselytize to them and that gives me uh, to put it politely the ick but um you know it's 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 grim um but yeah that's you know again and it loops back into what you're saying earlier this arrogance i think you know of going in and saying we have the truth we're going to learn their language so we can go in and bring this here for the purposes of yeah the religion getting the numbers up obviously i know it's difficult because that's kind of how i feel gets makes me angry but i know that there's people that you know they're doing it because they think they're doing a good thing it's very complicated but um yeah to, to loop back in as well obviously we all think share quite a strong feeling about bringing in sort of minors into these groups i mean that obviously it's bad and we shouldn't be doing it but um what do we do to combat that you know, how do we how do we stop that? What should we be doing? I think um, both Troy and I have live examples of this with mm -hmm. our children, actually. So yeah. I'll share mine and then Troy mm -hmm. can share his. But this was only a, oh, it was probably two months ago. My um, oldest stepson, he's, he's almost 17, he came home with a friend and the friend had only been here one or two times and then another good friend. And he said, can I go to church tonight? And he has very, very clearly actually exclaimed that he's an atheist mm -hmm. and he comes from good, strong atheist stock. And I was like, and I, I had a reaction. Um, Troy knows this because I was messaging at the time and I, I was having a meltdown and I, you know, I, I probably didn't, no, not I probably, I didn't handle it very well mm -hmm. because that kid was here and I said, why do you, why do you want to invite um, you know, the, the other kids here, what is it? What's behind it? Do you think that they need Jesus? And he's like, oh, oh, no. And I said, well, okay, answer me this question. If they don't accept Jesus in their life, do they go to hell? Oh, no, they don't go to hell. I said, well, there's no point in them going with you, is there? Because they've got <laughs> other friends elsewhere. And I was just, 
so what I did, I guess, as a way of combating, it was I said to my stepson, look, you're going to go and it's probably going to be a fun night and there, there won't be a mention of Jesus. You won't hear it, but you'll have a great night and there'll be a bunch of other kids around about your age and you'll relate and then you'll go, oh, what was what was Brian talking about? He's full of shit and he knows nothing. I said, but let me guarantee you, when you go back next or when you go back to another event, there'll be a peppering of religious undertone and Jesus. And and four or five events in, I promise you that there will be some pressure turned up and you will definitely feel, may, or maybe you won't, maybe you're a frog in a pot, but uh, maybe you will feel the, the fact that it has got a little bit more intense and there's a bit more urgency around you making some sort of commitment to this group and ultimately to Jesus. Otherwise, you're pretty much going to burn in hell. So, yeah, it was troublesome. But, Troy, you've got a similar example. Well, I was just going to say what you should have done, actually, is you just should have, should have said to him, here, here's some money, go and buy some drugs and some booze. As a matter of fact, I'll get the booze for you. <laughs> and that's how you could have counted it, right? You could have just you know, done some competing fun. That would have been good. Now, look, my, my son, my son has, you know, he knows about the podcast and I've told them the story over over years or bits and pieces of my story and so they you know they know about that and my son came home one day because one of his friends was trying to convert him at school and it was it was funny because i guess it'd be the same for you he came home with the pretty much the brand of bible that i used to use you know he brought home an niv study bible of which i've had Two, two different ones. And he, he brought it home. His friend had given it to him. And I'm like, oh, and he's saying, oh no, this is different, dad. This guy's not like the one that you were in, but he's already brought the same Bible. And, and I said, oh yeah, what's the name of the church? And he told me the name of the church. And I said, yeah, well, that guy used to teach me in Bible college. The pastor that's there now teaches me in Bible. College. And he's saying the names of these people and this stuff, and I'm just coming straight. And it was totally exactly the same as, as where I'd been. And it was really funny because my son just goes, oh, okay then. And I got a good relationship with my son. And he was yeah. just like, oh, it is the same. Okay, I'm not going. Mm. I said, look, if you want to go, I'll go with you and sit next to you, mm. right? And then because I'd just be sitting there going, okay, here comes the three slow, you know, three fast songs, two slow songs. <laughs> After that, this is going to happen. And I would just mm. be sitting there. I, I wouldn't have been going, they're doing this, they're doing that. I would have been saying, what do you think they're doing now? Why <laughs> do you think this is happening? And I would have totally ruined it. Um but he introduced his friend to the podcast and his friend had a you know a couple of listens and I'm not saying that we did this but last time I checked in with my son about this oh he doesn't go to church anymore he's actually given it up he thinks it's all bullshit now as well yada yada so that was kind of cool but mm. i have i think i have definitely vaccinated my kids against religion but in a good way in the sense that i haven't I don't keep them from it. Hey, you want to mm. go? Okay, you go, mm. but I'll come with you. Mm. Um, and now neither of them are interested at all. While we're on this subject of um, of children, um, it, it might be a good time to talk about um, the, the Duggars. Uh, I know it's a, it's not an Australian thing, but it's um, and it's not really something we knew much about, but this documentary came out, Shiny Happy People, and so I started to go down that particular rabbit hole and learn about this this family, the Duggars, um what do you know about this group the iblp is this something that is kind of related to to the group that you were in yeah definitely so i can remember years ago we're talking 1991 92 somewhere around there a, a good friend of mine from my church who went to bible college with me 
he said that he wasn't coming to church next week because he was going to the Bill Gothard conference in Adelaide. Mm. We're in Melbourne. Um, so he was flying to another city to attend this. And I'm like, who? And he's like, oh, Bill Gothard, he does this, does that. So he's the IBLP or was the IBLP mm. founder, leader. Um, and it turned out that it was at uh, Paradise Assembly of God, which is where the then head of the Assemblies of God in Australia was actually the senior pastor. So whilst there may not have been any sort of official IBLP products or anything like that sort of circulating around in the churches we went to, their emphasis and their connection was definitely there. And, you know, the the stories that you hear from the IBLP that, um, from that group that uh, Cabbage Patch Kids are cursed as they are leaving the factory, which is why you can't buy a Cabbage Patch Kid. I mean, we heard all those kinds of stories and the the complementarianism, the idea that the husband is above the wife. I can remember Mm -hmm. my pastor at the time when I was his assistant pastor, his youth pastor in, in a country town, he actually said to me about my wife or my, she became my wife at the time. She was my girlfriend and she was university educated. She had a career. And he said to me one day, he goes, I think you need a woman that's going to darn your socks, not a woman that's going to be like this. And this was the kind of advice that Mm. I was being given. So whether IBLP was directly influencing that, whether we were influencing them, you know, it's such a big hodgepodge, you know, the, the evangelical world. Um, but definitely it was, it was something that had its, had its influence on us in the nineties, which is when we were Pentecostaling. Yeah. For for those of our listeners that aren't aware of that, um, that documentary, um, it's, I think it's on prime Amazon prime. I think you can get it through that, um, shiny, happy, happy people. It's about the IBLP. Well, actually it's about the Duggars, which was a, a family, I mean, I suppose it's one of the original kind of reality TV shows, really, this family growing up. Um, they had how many kids? 19 kids or something. Um, and um, we followed them and saw all their, their, the way that they brought up their children and so on. So, yeah, that's the that's the background. If you, if you don't know about it, I really recommend watching the documentary. It's very, very interesting. Sorry, Brian. Do you remember, Stephen? You. So I was just going to say really quickly, Brian, do you remember Stephen in um, the Monty Python movie? What was the last one? Um, Holy Grail, was it? I meaning of life. No, no. Meaning the of meaning life. of life. Yeah. In the meaning of life where they have this Catholic family and the woman's actually at the sink and she's washing her dishes. And then all of a sudden this baby falls out between her legs while she's washing the dishes. And she goes, get that for me, will you? And <laughs> <laughs> and that's what the Duggars are like. They're like this modern version where they've just got a million kids. So even that, like we look at it and go, can you believe this? A century ago, that was Catholicism, right? Or maybe not even that long ago, you know, that you just weren't allowed to, to you know, use contraception. And so you had all these kids. And so the idea of what they call quiverful, mm. which is God grants you, a, you know, a quiver full of arrows. It's a metaphor for, for, for your children and probably sons more than daughters. Um, but this is, yeah, this is not new. And so the idea of, and I think I saw it on a meme the other, the other day as well, where it was one of those stickers on the back of the car, which shows the dad and the mum, and then all these little kids going down and there was this whole heap of kids and someone had written in their, with their finger in the dirt, for, for fuck's sake, get off her <laughs> because they had all these kids. But I mean, that's how it is. So, you know, they've got 19 kids and they make a reality show out of it and think this is a good thing. Mm. I mean, the woman's, the woman's life was in danger in her last pregnancy. Yeah. But it's also, you know, back to that 
arrogance again mm. of, of having all the answers, IBLP, it's the Institute of Basic Life Principles. Yeah. So we've got all the answers. We've got all these basic life principles. If you just follow them, everything will be fine. Yeah. I'm sure you'll probably be incontinent by the time you're two because you've had 19 children. But, you know, it's okay, basic life principles. It's that sort of thing. It's the purity culture too, which really feeds into that abuse of women. And we certainly saw purity culture probably not as full-on as IBLP within our Pentecostal scene, but but definitely mm. was very much up there. Individual purity is something that is incredibly valued and that is protected at all costs, and mm. particularly within IBLP. I mean, I've listened to a couple of interviews with people who went through that system and it's incredibly patriarchal. I mean, mm. if the women do anything that's outside of what is um, what is allowed within the boundaries of purity culture, they're damaged, damaged goods. But the men aren't. Mm. The men just keep pushing forward, and they're okay. That's okay because the woman tempted them, obviously, and it goes back to that original mm. sin idea. Mm. It's Eve. You know, it's Eve that yeah. did it, Obviously. and it really plays into it, and mm. it's absolutely horrible. And the damage done to women, I mean, all the podcasts I've listened to have been interviews with women who've come through it, and it's the same theme. They're incredibly damaged, and they're talking about, you know, even if they came out in their 20s and their 30s and now they're in their 50s and their 60s, they're talking about their relationships being tarnish forever their future mm. relationships because they have to work so much harder to actually mm. make them work and their new partners have to understand that trauma that they've been through so they're not triggering them with things that they are unknowingly potentially triggering them with so yeah. it's so incredibly damaging my ex-wife um actually said to me she was raised in the church and she said to me one day we were talking and she goes blah 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 blah, blah. oh that's because you used goods and i said what and she goes, yeah, you're used goods because you have had sex before we got married. Mm. And it was like, oh, thanks. Is that how you, is that how you see me? And that's how she saw me. And, you know, they talk about, you know, that you are like chewed gum. It's like giving a piece of chewed up gum to your future partner. And, and it's just all this shaming and it's, it's, it's slut shaming of women. And for what it's worth, mm. it's also to a degree, a much lesser degree, but there's sort of, you know, slut shaming of men as well. And I, I, I just kind of laughed when she said that to me, but she was dead serious that mm. I was used goods. And it's like, yeah, baby, that's the way it is. <laughs> mm. It's, it's, um, it's something I was listening to on the indoctrination podcast actually recently, where they were talking about yeah the purity culture stuff and um, yeah the relationship re with uh, like complex PTSD and things like that, and that actually they're starting to realise the effects of that and how yeah like you say it's going to have those reoccurring effects throughout, and that it it does take working through. It's one of those things you don't just stop. Yeah, it's one of those things, you know, people say, why are you still talking about this after you've left these groups? And it's because it takes a lot of talking through and working through. It's not like you stop and everything to do with purity culture, for example, just poofs away because you're like, oh, it's not real. It's fine. That's something you've been indoctrinated in for years and years, maybe all of your life, maybe for a portion of your life. But it still, yeah, creates trauma. It still impacts you and you have a right to talk about it. <laughs> 
Yeah, I actually wanted to, that was a topic I wanted to ask you guys about, because I think um, it's one of the things that people who have never experienced this sort of life, I think sometimes find difficult when we talk about trauma and the difficulties and all of that. I think um, hopefully most people that listen to our podcast um, sort of recognize that, but I think it's still worth asking the question, what what are we actually talking about? Why is this traumatic? Why is it traumatic to come out of a of a religious setting you know what what are the issues that people like us actually have to deal with well i think europe went through its own religious trauma it was called the dark ages and then came the enlightenment right and if you think about it from a societal perspective or from a historical perspective when the church had control it drove a lot of things into the ground and we look at basically what it did to you know to to entire countries and then you had the enlightenment when people sort of started to to wake up to this and there's this throwing off there's this resistance to to these old ways of thinking and and I I was thinking about this yesterday or today when I was walking that really that is a macrocosm of what happens for people in a micro sense, that if we think that the dark ages were bad for society or bad for culture or bad historically, whichever way you want to define it, this is what fundamentalism does to the individual. And this is what fundamentalism does to families, that it actually constricts, that it it, it constrains, it reduces your ability, as Brian said before, to grow so much of that. And yet I think when we look at these these sort of individuals coming out of this and and stepping into sort of freedom, I think the, the difference is once upon a time when this was happening, you know, as as I said a moment ago, to, to Europe, there was no other voices, there was no freedom. Whereas now people can actually they've got something to to relate it to or something that to which it can be relative. And I think because we see it didn't have to be this way because we see I've actually missed out on so much, whether it's through pop culture that we see around us or whether it's through our friends at school, we we are aware, we're acutely aware that something's not right and that something is, is holding us down. And I think that in itself is, is part of the trauma. I wonder if there was nowhere to escape to, if there was no, no other objective reality to look at and see I wonder if we would call it trauma. I wonder if we'd even measure it as trauma. I wonder if we would just sort of say, like we did, you know, five, 600 years ago, this mm. is just the way it is. Mm. And look, I'm, maybe I'm being too philosophical, too esoteric in that, but I think part of the trauma is the fact that we can see both while we're in it and we make these concessions to stay and we give up. When we do finally wake up to it, there's a sense of loss and there's a sense of grief. Mm. And I think that's a big part of the trauma. I'm not saying it's all the trauma, but but I think that's what makes it so hard for people because especially when you have sacrificed so much and it turns out to be for for a fiction. Yeah. Brian, what's your thoughts? Yeah, I think you you lose your sense of safety as well. And I think that's a really big thing that keeps people in it. So even when there is an objective view unless they've got something safe to go to or at least a perception of safety they're not going to leave it. So that control is definitely there. I mean, these are called high control groups for a reason. They exert a very high level of control. And guests that we we spoke to recently, um, DL and Crispin Mayfield. Crispin is a, 
a therapist in the States and he wrote a book, I think a year or two ago, about attachment theory and related it to God rather than the parent and child relationship. That's very but interesting. A lot of, yeah, it's really interesting actually. And um, he, he definitely spoke about it in our interview with them and it really resonated with me because it was very incredibly unhealthy, that relationship, and, and an incredibly abusive relationship mm-hmm. with the fundamentalist evangelical God or the J-Dub God or even the Mormon God, you know, that vengeful God, that if you do not do the right thing, and sometimes you won't even know what the right thing is because, you know, God likes to surprise you with a, a little bit yes. of punishment, that he will whack you and he will punish you. And it, it's that sort of stuff which really messes with people's heads. And that's what keeps them in these groups because there is a sense of safety. Now, it's a perceived sense of safety. There's no real safety. It's actually damaging you and continuing to damage you. But the perception of safety is the real game-changing trick that these groups have because they've fooled you into thinking that the incredibly uh, unhealthy attachment that you have to their movement and to their God that they they um, present to you is a safe place when it's not. That's so interesting. That's the first time I've ever heard anybody else um, talk about that. So it's, it's something that I've... So we had Alexandra Stein, I think I mentioned before, on our show, and she's used attachment theory, but she tends to use it as a way to understand the, the cult leader's relationship to the um, the individual. Um, and when she came on the show, I actually put this to her. Um, for me, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses have created this, this God, um, Yahweh, however you want to describe it, very much drawn from the Old Testament, the the Hebrew scriptures. And this is a very scary, narcissistic God. This isn't like the Christian God in many ways. This is a God that um, changes his mind constantly. One minute he's a God of loving kindness, the next he's a he's a God of jealousy and um and fear. And um it's very much like an abusive relationship. This is so that's something that I've um put to a number of people and very rarely do do uh experts want to go down that particular route and i think i understand why but that's that is so interesting yeah and i think it's that um it's that destruction of self isn't it and it's the feeling that when you come out of this this situation you're so um you, you're confused about who you are and um, what you think about all sorts of things and how you feel about everything it's it's damaged that that sense of self so that's a big part of the, the trauma too but that's that's really interesting. And who is that again? Sorry, I missed the name. Uh, it's uh, Crispin Mayfield. So there are a couple, DL and Crispin Mayfield, and they have a, a podcast called The Prophetic Imagination Station. What's and the other one that we did too, about? Brian, was we had um, Catherine Queering on the show, and she was also talking about the narcissistic God and the picture of this narcissistic God. And, and the comedy of this is it's a fiction, yeah. that people are in the relationship with this fictitious, it's like having a relationship with Mickey Mouse, you know, or Indiana Jones. And yet the power, because we, it's this imaginary friend that you actually are told this is how this, it's just such a great con, isn't it? That you're actually sitting there going, I am afraid I am in relationship. I am actually having my psyche, my emotional well-being, all this sort of stuff impacted by something that doesn't even exist. 
Yeah. It's just absolute craziness. And yet this is what we see. And, and the fact that Crispin wrote this book on attachment theory really speaks to me that that was his journey out because as he started, as he wrote this book and he wrote it for a, for a fundamentalist audience as a, as a fundamentalist himself. And then he realized, Oh, this relationship isn't good for me. And then realized, and if that's true, then this, this entity doesn't exist. And now he's, he's. Yeah. Look, of course, what it does from a cult um, perspective is often people think about cults as having a, a single um, charismatic leader. Um, and of course they're often narcissistic in their, uh, in their personality. Um, and so when, when we think about groups like Jehovah's Witnesses or even evangelical groups, they often, sometimes they do have a, a very charismatic leader or pastor, but for JWs, they don't really, there isn't a, a charismatic leader there. But so my argument is essentially this, this God that they create becomes the charismatic leader that, um, that then uh, controls people through the, or it's controlled through the, the leadership. Um, so yeah, that's, um, that's really interesting. So yeah, last time we spoke to you, you were actually called B and T, and obviously since then you've come out and you've um, you've revealed your your true self. You've got a, a great little website there that we'll put a link to, so people can see what you look like and who you are. Um, but the one thing I was going to ask you last time that I didn't really get into was was the whole speaking in tongues thing. So um, this is something we we did touch on it, but I I'm really curious about what that feels like to actually speak in tongues because it, it's so alien to to most of us uh, we certainly didn't that, do that as jehovah's witnesses what's yeah, that's because like? you weren't truly saved Stephen. that's why <laughs> yes. because you didn't Spirit. have the truth brother yeah you yeah, didn't have the yeah. truth you yeah, thought yeah. you did but you didn't <laughs> um it's funny you know because when i reflect and brian and i are thinking about doing an episode where we're going to look back at our conversion stories because we told them at the very beginning of the podcast and we've done so much growing both as individuals but also and in as our understanding of everything that sort of happened to us through the podcast through doing the podcast that it's kind of time to go back and speaking in tongues for both of us was very early on and was very closely linked to our conversion in fact i was in a group that said you have to speak in tongues to be a Christian. And so everybody, and this is again, history lessness, right? Everybody that's ever claimed to be a Christian that never spoke in tongues prior to the 1900s, you know, we're not, we're not Christians. Um, but I was never really convinced of my speaking in tongues experience. I was expecting it to be much more profound, much more. And, you know, people would argue, Pentecostals would argue, oh, it just shows that you didn't really speak in tongues. But so many people that I speak to, have said the same thing that, oh, I didn't really think it was a thing. And I didn't really think I had it. And I think people that are more honest with themselves um, will, even within, within the groups, because I had people coming to me going, oh, would you pray for me? I don't think I've really got the gift of speaking in tongues because nobody did, but you all convinced yourself that you did. And so when I finally got it, the pastor said to me, that's it, Troy, you've got it. You've got it. And, you know, you're just waiting for someone to say you've got it. And I was like, oh, I didn't feel any different. It didn't, you know, I, I could, I could do this sort of shanda shanda la 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 la, you know, this kind of thing. There you go. There's a little bit for you. Um, I could do all that. And yet it didn't mean anything, yeah. but then the longer I stayed in the group, the better I got at it. 
I could speak in tongues better. I was, you know, I can remember the first time I got home from this camp where I did speak in tongues for the first time. And my, my brother, my older brother, he's four years older than me. And he sat me down and he goes, go on, do it then. And I, I'm going to simulate, this is not me speaking in tongues, but this is what it sound, sounded like. And it was sort of this, like this. And my brother just looked at me and goes, like this back at me. And, and, and I was like, yeah, okay. Later, by the end of my time, dude, my tongue, I, it sounded like Hebrew or Arabic or whatever, because it had just been years and years of, yeah. of doing it. And, and you get better at it. And they would actually say that to you, oh, you'll grow into your tongue. That's what they would actually say. Like, does God give you this miracle thing or not? Mm-hmm. Well, obviously not because you're going to grow. What they really mean is you're going to get better at this over time. And, you know, the cognitive dissonance must have been there for these leaders as well because they must have heard people. There was there was people that would speak in tongues like this. Right? That doesn't okay. sound like a language to me. Yeah, exactly. No. Mm. Um, so, so what did it feel like? It It became very natural by the end. Um, you know, even just a few years in, it became very natural. It became very normal. Everyone around you was doing it. Um, but it's not proof of anything, is it? Mm. You know, like it doesn't, it doesn't, I, I remember taking someone, excuse me, came along to the revival center once a friend of mine invited them and they're talking to them about the proof of speaking in tongues. And this guy walked out and said, proof of what you just making noises. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of people convincing themselves of things. And I was once one of them. Isn't really that interesting? That's fascinating. I think it, for me, it was. Um, I actually, I thought it was legit, even yeah. though I had to be coached to receive it. So mm-hmm. essentially, it's repeat after me, and you would definitely get coached into it. But I think what, I, what the reason I thought that it was fairly legit was it actually brought me comfort when I did it. So if I was feeling anxious or I was feeling like I needed to. Um, dig deeper into God. Like I didn't have the words myself. I would let the spirit speak for me. And that's well, what maybe you, you really did were. speak in tongues, Brian. Maybe that's what's going on here. <laughs> like you think you were a bad Christian. Maybe you were the real Christian. Maybe it I wasn't. I've given, it, I've given it all up. Um, but, you know, it, it brought me comfort, I think, because it sent you into a bit of a meditative state. And, you know, psychologically, there's a, a fair bit of evidence around this that it does actually take you into a a little bit of a trance-like state mm. in many ways mm. as well. And and I remember I hadn't spoken in tongues for years. After I left the Pentecostal movement, I went to more of a, a mild expression of Christianity and tongues just wasn't something that was was used. So it was probably like 10 years and I was like, oh, well, every now and then I'd roll it out for a bit of fun, but um, certainly not <laughs> at a, a public prayer meeting like you would in Pentecostalism. People would be yeah. shouting in tongues, mm. like you'd have a room full of babble. and um, I I remember when I went through a couple of particularly traumatic experiences in my life that I all of a sudden I just went back to speaking in tongues because again it brought me that comfort it took me into a place of feeling I don't know probably safe and but I think it was that meditative space more than anything mm. um it certainly wasn't a real language that's you, for sure Brian Brian do you think it was a meditative state and I I'm not I'm not saying it's not or do you think like when you did it years later, it was like an association with this was God or this was spiritual. And, you know, if you were feeling at any, in any way in need, being able to do that was like an association to something comfortable rather than it actually a bit of both, maybe, I don't know. 
yeah, maybe I'll have to pray about that and get back to you and see <laughs> see what the Lord says. <laughs> it's interesting. There's um, I don't know much about this field, but there are people that um, help people with phobias and so on, flight flying phobias and so on, and they have little um, like little rituals, very small rituals that they they do that help them when they're feeling this this fear of flying or something like that. And it could be like um, putting their 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 thumb up on the roof of their mouth or or just sort mm-hmm. of tapping their tapping their hand a little bit with the other hand and it, it because as you said um uh troy it's, it's an association thing you, you sort of learn that to feel relaxed mm-hmm. and when you're feeling relaxed maybe in a slightly hypnotic state you do this action and then when you're feeling that anxiety you do that action again and it it sort of calms you down so it could well be something very mm-hmm. similar happening but i don't know the I mean- science behind it yeah, it also sounds a lot like, obviously, to, you know, um, take it or leave it. It sounds a lot like stimming as well. <laughs> you know, like um, things that bring comfort, by, like it's making noises. Yeah, yeah, making yeah. noises or making mm. like, like you said, like people that do things like, um, like you said, like with the touching the roof of the mouth, like that can be like stimming behavior as well. So it could be playing into things like that for some people and things. I, I think the association piece is still quite important Mm. to a lot of us even later. Mm. And what I mean by that is we're not comfortable speaking in tongues because it was such a a holy thing. You know, even now having left recently on another podcast, I was on a podcast with a group of other Pentecostals and and I actually did it, but Mm. it's not easy. It's not easy for me to sort of turn it on on cue because we were told don't do it that way. You know, you have to be Mm. in the right setting. and, And so it's funny because even now I don't like doing it, but the association now is not that it brings me comfort. It actually triggers me. And I don't mean that in the sort of millennial trigger. I mean, a literal psychological trigger that I actually start to trigger. It takes me back to, to a time and it takes me back, you know, it, I think it taps into the, to the trauma of it all. So there's an association there in, in a negative way for me now. And, and even the other day when we're on this other podcast and I started speaking in tongues, the other Pentecostal, the, the woman that was hosting, I could see she was totally uncomfortable because she didn't mm. start doing it and she mm, was yeah. raised with it as well. So you won't hear a lot of ex-Pentecostals doing it. I think it, it equate it to the idea of like, if I gave you a, a Bible, you know, like a J-Dub Bible and said, set it on fire, you would, you know, like you could probably do it, but you wouldn't feel comfortable doing it's that because of what it absolutely meant absolutely you. right you're so you're absolutely right and and the funny thing is when you when you sort of did your little very short um bit of that a little part part of me was a bit bit like if not scared a little bit hesitant because we were he's got demons, to be, he's got demons. <laughs> exactly you know this is a demonic influence thing um so we were conditioned to believe that so yeah we wouldn't want to hear um people speaking in tongues because it was actually um yeah demons uh, acting through the person so yeah these are so deep these psychological um conditions or conditioning that that we've uh, we've experienced yeah really interesting and, and this was brought to us Stephen, as teenagers so we were still forming mm, you know our identity yeah. and the way we saw the world and everything and so this is this is really you know, this was sown into us and into who we are and into our psyche at such a young age. And we were Pentecostals. We were defined by this gift of yeah. tongues. And so it's not surprising that we're still a little bit wigged out. And like I said, the other day I was on that podcast and I and I did it, but I just, oh, I almost fell apart 
to be honest, but, but it was kind of cool to sort of go, yeah. yeah. And this is me having left 30 years ago, but still just only now being able to go, ah, he's look, what, look what I can do. Mm. Yeah. 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 And this is part of the trauma. You know, the question that I asked before, this is part of what you're trying to unpack afterwards, understanding why you have these responses to some of these things that, that others wouldn't. Um, so yeah, I guess that is part of it. Great. Well, it's coming to the evening for you guys, so um, we won't keep you any longer. Um, if if our listeners want to hear more about your story, obviously they should check out your own podcast. Um, I was a teenage fundament- fundamentalist on all of the good podcasts app. Um, we talked to you about a year and a half ago, two years ago. So if you wanted to listen to that podcast, it's in our archive. I think it still uh, pops up there. You can see it. Um, but, um, for now, thank you so much guys for coming on the show and, um, yeah, really excited about the work you're doing Um, keep it up and, um, yeah, keep in touch. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you. And Stephen, can I also point out if they want to, if people, if your listeners want to connect with you on our show, episode 82 is, Mm -hmm. is where you're, you're actually our guest. And we talk about organizational psychology and cults, which is a great, great episode. Cool. Thanks for that. Great. Well, thank <laughs> you, Brian and Troy. And um, we'll, I'm sure we'll speak again. We will. See you guys. <laughs> thank awesome. you.